Good afternoon. Philippians chapter 4. I actually want to read a few verses before chapter 4. We actually want to begin reading at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. But we're going to continue into chapter 4. Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now we've been thinking in Philippians about the unity of the brothers and sisters, the unity of the believers, and how that affects the church, and how conversely, disunity can be something that is tremendously damaging to the work of God. We saw disunity hinted at in chapter 1, at some who were doing the right thing, preaching the gospel, but out of the wrong motivations. And yet we saw that the better way was to be striving together for the faith of the gospel with one mind and one spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've learned some practical tips on how to be unified as believers, to pray for one another, to have one another in our hearts, to esteem others better than ourselves. That is, to put ourselves lower that others may be advantaged. And of course, these aren't things that the natural man is able to do. These aren't things that we in our natural humanity have the power or capacity to do. It's only a regenerate person, a person indwelt by the Spirit of God that's able to emulate the mind of Christ. So if we're to be imitators of Christ, we have to be first born again. There's no point in trying to be like the Lord Jesus if you aren't first saved. Gandhi used to say how much he admired Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, rather convictingly, he said, I like their Christ, but I don't like their Christian. And what he meant was that in the world that called itself Christian, within Christendom and among many people that would describe themselves as Christians, he didn't see much that was like the Lord Jesus. He saw a lot, sadly, that didn't adorn the gospel. But we were told in chapter 1, let your conversation be that which is fitting to the gospel. Let your manner of living. And it's really the verbal form in Greek of the noun we get here in chapter 3, verse 20. When he says, for our conversation, it's really the word that probably is best rendered in our language, citizenship. And when he says in chapter 1, verse 27... Let your your uh, conversation there, he says, let your way of behaving like a citizen, literally. Let the way you live reflect where your citizenship is. And here he declares it plainly. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that would have set off alarm bells for the Philippians because Philippi was what you call a colony city. 
That is, that if you lived in Philippi, it was like a little outpost of Rome. They looked to Rome for their fashions. They looked to Rome for their educational models. They looked to Rome for their political models. And if you had citizenship in the city of Philippi, automatically you had Roman citizenship, which doubtless by your reading of the New Testament you'll know was a very coveted advantage. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and taken into the Antonia Fortress and bound and was about to be flogged, he suddenly pointed out to his jailers that he was a Roman citizen. He said, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman and uncondemned? And indeed, according to Roman law, you were innocent till proven guilty. Have you heard of that before? Well, a lot of the aspects of our Western legal system are derived from the Roman system and even more from the Hebrew system before it. But nonetheless, the person who was about to flog him immediately alerted their superior, take care what you do to this man because he's a Roman citizen. And the officer came out to inquire if this was true. And he said, with a great sum of money, I've obtained this citizenship. But Paul said, I was Roman born. And we don't exactly know how that was. It was probably that his father before him was a citizen. And as his son, it was automatically conferred upon him. Nonetheless, we see by that passage the great value that Roman citizenship had. It opened doors for you in the ancient world. And so Philippians were very proud of their citizenship. I don't know if Lee Greenwood had a song, I'm proud to be a Philippian. And at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the man who died who gave that right to me. I'll stop because some of you might have tears welling up in your eyes at that great patriotic anthem running through your mind. But citizenship was a big deal to them. It was very important to be a Roman citizen. And yet Paul says, I want you to understand that in spite of whatever national pride you might feel and city pride you might feel and whatever civic benefits that conveys upon you, that you as believers have something far higher, far greater, of far more importance than that citizenship. Your real citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship, says Paul, is in heaven. Now, again, I'm thankful for the country I grew up in. I'm thankful for the freedoms we have here. I pray that they might be maintained, that that we might use them in a God-honoring way. I pray that we would use them to advance the gospel while we have the chance. But it may not always be the case. And I tell you, God's kingdom isn't resting on the fortunes of the United States. As much as it pains me in one sense to say it, this country could go down entirely. And God's still going to build his church. God's still going to fulfill his promises to Israel. God's still going to fulfill every jot and tittle of his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. So it's okay to be patriotic and be thankful for your country and by all means be a good citizen for testimony's sake because you recognize, as Romans 13 points out, that the powers that be are ordained of God. But if you're a Christian here today, never ever forget that you have a higher allegiance. 
that there is a citizenship you possess by the grace of God, which is higher and better than American citizenship, or even better than the coveted Canadian citizenship. I was taken to task because when I was mentioning all the different groups here today, I forgot to mention Canada. And I spend a lot of time in Canada, so it's somewhat ironic. We were just there less than a month ago, and yet that's how it goes. Um, I'll I'll blame it on having a middle-aged moment or whatever, but I hope I've made up for it to the dear brother who questioned me on that. But in any case, the highest citizenship is citizenship in heaven. And that was where Paul's focus was. From whence we wait for our Savior, he said. We're looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change. Now, the King James there has vile body. And doubtless that's not bad, except if we get the idea by reading that, that somehow Paul was denigrating the body or saying the body somehow is sinful or the body isn't good, the New Testament doesn't teach against the body, okay? But it does say, some translations render this here, are lowly bodies. Or I like the translation that says, the bodies of our humiliation. Because after all, these are bodies that are subject to the effects of the fall, aren't they? I mean, sin is the most empirically empirically verifiable thing in the world today because we can see its effects all around us. We don't even need to leave the room to see the effects of sin. Just look at your own body. And every time you have an ache or a pain, that's verification of the reality of sin and evil and the consequences of it in the world. And every time uh, we were reaching for the aspirin or the Tylenol or pick your pain reliever of choice, or we were working out and afterwards we're sore, or maybe our back goes out on us, or any of the things that can happen to our physical bodies, we're reminded these bodies are fragile. These bodies are wearing out. These bodies are physical embodiments of the principle of entropy. They are running down. And that's how these bodies are. Bodies that when they were 25 years old could run the 100-meter dash in tremendous time, or bodies that could bench press 400 pounds, or bodies that could get up and work for 16 hours a day, or be up all night with the children and, and still put in a full day the next day doing one's duties. Whatever it was we used to do, as time goes on, we realize these are bodies that eventually let us down. Bodies that fail. Bodies that get older and bodies that corrupt. You know, you can look back on some people that were beautiful decades ago since we live in the video and the photo age. If you see a film of Grace Kelly, for example, you know, like in uh, one of those old Hitchcock films, they say that Hitchcock had a crush on Grace Kelly and she was just luminous on screen. And I picked her because we have Kelly Drive in Philadelphia, named after her family, so it's a little local pride coming out anyway, but never mind. You know, she would just glide across the screen, and so many people admired her beauty. And yet, if you could see Grace Kelly today, she doesn't look the same. Poor lady was killed in an accident years ago, and her body has corrupted. Her body is crumbling to dust. And but for the Lord coming, 
That's what's going to happen to everybody. That's what's going to happen to everybody in this room. You may be at the apex of your health today, and I wish you many years of good health, but your body's going to wear out. And in context, Paul is warning them against a false gospel that was putting the emphasis on the body and saying it's all about what you eat and what you taste and what you handle. That's the kind of thing. He says these people, their God is their belly. They're looking at their bodies that are going to wear out. Well, your doctrine's important. It's absolutely fundamental to unity. And what unifies us is when we remember the doctrine that the Lord Jesus is coming again. That our citizenship is in heaven, and when he comes, he's the great recycler. You can't be more green in that sense than the Lord Jesus. He's going to recycle these bodies of humiliation that are corrupting and wearing out and breaking down, and he's going to transform them. Look at the description in verse 21. Who shall change our lowly body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Now you might look at your body and you might say, Keith, I'm on two false knees. I'm on an artificial hip. I'm on treatment for cancer. I'm on treatment for heart problems. I'm on treatment for diabetes. Keith, I've got this or that condition. You don't know all that's wrong with me. If you pulled out my medical chart, it looks like the yellow book. You know, it's so thick with all the things wrong with me. Notice what Paul says about this transformative power of the Lord. According to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. You think it's going to be hard to change your body to be like unto his glorious body? Somebody thought it was hard for the Lord once upon a time in John chapter 11. It was Martha, dear soul. What a godly woman was Martha. She said to the Lord, even now I believe that God will give you anything you ask. And yet when the Lord went out to the tomb and said, roll the stone away from the door, she said, Lord... Have you lost your marbles? It's been four days, Lord. She voiced, enunciated what doubtless was on everybody's mind. By now, he stinks. His body's corrupting that process of death. He's been dead for four days. You know, according to Jewish tradition, the later rabbis at least believed that a person's soul hung around a dead body for three days. Well, That's interesting, and there's certainly no biblical warrant for that idea. But now it was beyond that, wasn't it? It was four days. There was no hope of this man being resuscitated to life. Even if you had modern technology and you rushed in with the paddles, as it were, the defibrillator, and you yelled clear, boom, it wasn't going to do anything for Lazarus, was it? He had been dead four days. And the process of corruption was already at work in his members. And yet, what does the Lord Jesus do? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. And the Lord said, loose him from the grave clothes and let him go. Because you didn't need to hold together a decaying body anymore. This was a live, sound, restored human body. That's a little picture of what's to come. 
but a harbinger of something that's going to be a great more harvest. Because it says here, the Lord is able to work all things, even by the working which he subdues everything to himself. In other words, this is the one who has all power and in heaven and earth. This is the one who is completely sovereign. And I don't care if you've been dead four days or 4,000 years. If he says come forth, you're going to come forth. Except the next time he does that, he's going to transform our bodies to be like unto his glorious body. Because when Lazarus came forth, the Lord Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. He had not yet sealed his victory over death and the grave and hell and sin. But when the Lord Jesus comes back again, he's coming back as the first fruits of those who sleep. The first one who rose from the dead, never to die anymore in this new glorious body. The firstborn from the dead in the sense that he has the rank and the authority To cry out, come forth. And when he cries out with a loud voice, what Mr. Darby translates in 1 Thessalonians 4 as an assembling shout, he's going to gather his people unto himself in the air, transformed. Not incorporeal, not Casper the friendly ghost, not unclothed, spiritually naked, but clothed upon, says Paul, with our house which is from the heavens, as he says in Second Corinthians 5. Now given a glorious body. And how long will it take the Lord to do that? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Faster than it takes for light to go through the front of your eye, the cornea, to the back of your eye, your retina. Quicker than that light can go through your eye. Quicker than you can blink. A lot quicker. The Lord will transform us to be like his glorious body. Now, that prophetic truth is meant to have an impact on how we live right now. Because in the very next verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, therefore. And you've got to look back, as the old preachers used to say, to what that's there for. Why is he saying that now? Therefore, my brethren, please notice how he describes them. First, they're my brethren. They're all part of the same spiritual family in Christ. Dearly beloved. They're not just in the same family, but they're dearly beloved. Again, it's from the word agape. For uh, the ones uh, from the verbal form, agapao there. But from the, the, the love of God. You're dearly beloved with, with the love that Christ teaches us. And longed for. I long to be with you. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift, he could say. I want to get out of prison and come and help you along in spiritual things. You are my dearly beloved brethren and longed for. And he goes further, my joy and my crown. Now, sometimes parents look at their children and they say, that's my pride and joy. Sort of what he's saying here. You're my joy. But how can he say that? And in what sense are they his crown? Well, this isn't the crown of a monarch. This isn't what Queen Elizabeth would wear upon her head, the diadema. This is the Stephanos, the victor's crown. It was the laurel wreath crown given at the Olympic Games, or as the Corinthians would have been familiar with, the Isthmian Games. And this was the athlete whose triumph is given this crown. 
Now, what is he meaning? In what sense are they his joy and crown? Well, he says something similar to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2. He calls them his joy and crown as well. And it's in the context of the judgment seat of Christ. So he's looking at his fellow believers as they are in Christ and as they're going to be in that day when Christ presents the church to himself. And he's saying, when I get to the judgment seat there, if anyone were to ask, now, Lord, what did you get from saving Saul of Tarsus? What did he do as Paul? He's going to point, for one example at least, to the Philippian Christians. And he's going to say, you see those saints here? They're here in part because of how I used my servant Paul. So the mark of his victory that his Christian life and service hadn't been in vain. And what he was looking forward to rejoicing in was how his work for Christ in them was going to be recompensed. You know, there's nothing you do in the name of the Lord for any other believer or for a lost person for that matter that is going to go unrequited, that will not receive its proper reward. It might seem to you like the recipient of your kindness is ungrateful. It might seem to you that what you tried to do for the Lord was unsuccessful. It might seem that what you wanted to do, what was in your heart, didn't quite pan out. But the judgment seat is going to paint things differently, beloved. The little things, even the giving a cup of water in His name, to quote our Lord's words again in Matthew 10, That is going to be commemorated and that is going to be remembered. So he talks of them as his brethren dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord. And he repeats it again, my dearly beloved. Now I harp on this. I emphasize this point because I want you to know that right around the corner, there's a rebuke coming right around the corner. He's got to deal with the problem. Right around the corner, he's going to talk about disunity in the church. Look at what he does first. He reminds the believers what they mean to him. I tell you, there are Christians that when you sin, when you slip and fall, when you mess up, they're in a hurry to come and tell you about it. Tell you what you did wrong. And how bad you are in some cases. And everything they say might be absolutely accurate. But I tell you, before we go and seek to correct our brother and sister, and it's very needed that we do, our Lord left us the example of washing one another's feet. That's a much underdone ministry today. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need to correct one another. He that turns a sinner from the error of his ways saves a soul from death. Paul would say, if a brother be overtaken in a fault in Galatians 6.1, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of fear, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Before Paul went and corrected them, he first proved again and again how much he loved them. He first was involved in their lives to build them up in the Lord. Now, if you're not getting involved in the life of another believer to build them up in the Lord, if you haven't shown that you love them, and if you can't approach them in correction and love, 
Don't do it, brother. Pray that the Spirit of God puts it on somebody else's heart. Because you'll do more harm than good. Paul's writing to two sisters that are having a problem. They're not getting on. There's some divergence of opinion. We don't know exactly what it is. It's not named for us. But before Paul writes to them of that, he wants them to know, I love you. He wants them to know we're citizens of heaven. He wants them to know the Lord is coming back. The Lord is going to change us. We're not yet as we're going to be. Let's all keep that in mind as I seek to correct you. But correct I must. Verse 2. I beseech Iodias and I beseech Syntyche. So seems like there was mutual fault. He repeats the verb for emphasis. That they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women. Now please look at how he describes them. Oftentimes when we have people in the church who are a problem, we might think of them adversely. We might think ill of them. And there's some Christians that I've often thought in my heart, you know, that brother or sister is so problematic, why don't they just find another church to take their problems to? I kind of secretly wish it on some other fellowship. That's an evil thing to do. He says here, no, you true yoke fellow, help these women. Now look at how he describes them. Who labored with me in the gospel. In other words, he doesn't minimize their problem. He doesn't say it doesn't matter that they're not getting on and that they're not of the same mind. He wants them to be of the same mind. But even as this yoke fellow is called upon to help them patch things up and get on the same page and agree one with another, remember what they've done for the Lord. They've been faithful laborers in the gospel. And sometimes we can be very hard on one another and forget past service for the Lord. Sometimes the brother or sister that's being the problem, we're inclined to want to treat them harshly. And we forget that they might have behind them years of faithfulness, years of past service for the Lord. We may forget it, but the Lord doesn't. They were fellow laborers with me in the gospel. And with Clement also and with other of my fellow laborers, notice whose names are in the book of life. So at the end of the day, you have to remember about Yodius and Syntyche is their names are in the Lord's book, the book of life. They're saved. They're going to be with the Lord for all eternity. The Lord wants them. The Lord wants to save them. He saved them and He's going to take them to heaven and glorify them. They're important to the Lord. So you can't write them off. You've got to get involved and you've got to get them back on the same page of the same mind in the Lord. How do you do that? Read to them chapter 2. Get them to have that mind of Christ. Talk to them over and over again about the Lord Jesus and everything He's done for them until their pride breaks and their heart breaks and they get down and hug one another and love one another and say, I'm sorry. And genuinely repent of whatever it was. But Paul handles it in two verses. That's all it required. And if we had the spiritual sensitivity sometimes to handle things with the brevity of words that Paul did in two verses and to get the right people in play to help those who are struggling, we might need to take fewer major 
church discipline activities that are sometimes required. I'm not saying the major things wouldn't happen. But as someone once said, the more often Galatians 6.1 is carried out, the less often 1 Corinthians 5 must be carried out. A lot of truth in that. There's a need for preventative ministry. There's a need for getting involved with problems when they're small before they become big. And yet when we do it, we must always keep in mind, these are the Lord's people. These are His. These are precious to the Lord. I can't lord over them. I can't lift myself up as better than them. I can't say I wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be me. I have to get down right where they are and in love point them back to Christ and work in them as the Spirit works through me. Work in them a reconciliation. I have to do that under the Lord. And he handles that in just a few verses. It's so wonderful to see it. So wonderful to see the Lord bringing problems to resolution very simply. And again, sometimes we think, well, we'll just pretend it's not happening and it'll go away. No, no, it seldom works that way, folks. We've got to get involved. Involved in one another's lives before there's a problem. Showing love to one another before there's a problem. So that if a problem develops, we have the credibility to go to our brother or sister, put our arm around them and say, I love you, but you're in the wrong here. I love you, but your behavior needs to change. Your way of thinking needs to change. You need to get to be more like the Lord Jesus in this situation. takes a lot of skill to do that. And it's only by getting close to the Lord ourselves that we can learn that type of skill. It doesn't come naturally. And you can't learn it in school, not in man's school at any rate. You have to learn it at the feet of the Lord Jesus. You have to let him teach you how to come alongside a brother or sister and correct and rebuke and apply the word medicinally, like it's a medicine, to put the right medicine on the right wound to just meet the need of the hour. Oh, may God give us more saints with a heart to do that. May God raise up more elders with a heart to do that. The elders have a hard job, especially nowadays. And you can't be a long-distance elder, folks. You've got to be among the sheep. You've got to be working. You've got to be right there down with them. You've got to go into the bypaths where they wander and bring them back. But bring them back like the Lord Jesus did. Bring them back on your shoulders. Bring them back carrying them. When they're weak, be strong in the Lord for them. And remember, always remember, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, may God help us, brothers and sisters. These are things that are easier to preach on than they are to live. But may God help us to have the mind of Christ and to live toward one another in a way that we build each other up and edify and lead one another on to Christ. As we see from this passage, the sisters can have a tremendous ministry in the assembly but they can also have a detrimental effect. Their role, as I said earlier, is different from the men. That's according to God's ordering. But their input and what they do one with another and how they interrelate is just as important as what the brothers do. The spiritual climate of the assembly, 
depends on our sisters being godly and walking with the Lord Jesus. And it depends on the brothers to be the same, to be walking with the Lord, guided by his holy word. May God help us to do so, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank thee today for the Lord Jesus. We thank thee for our citizenship, which is in heaven. We're not waiting for a calendar of events. We're not waiting for the fulfillment of a prophecy as much as we are waiting for a person. A person who will come for us. A person who's going to come personally. He says, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Father, we thank thee. We pray that we, having this hope, would purify ourselves even as he is pure. And that we would conduct ourselves one toward another as citizens of heaven who are awaiting the Lord Jesus to come for us, who could come at any moment. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.